the, the phrase or the message that I hear, heard the Lord say is, become like a child again. And the scenario was we're praying on the Monday night and it really feels like the prayer is becoming outward focused. It's becoming on evangelism. And I'm, and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm like in a little bit of inner turmoil conflict where I'm thinking to myself, like, I hear it and in prayer I'm zealous, but why am I not doing it tomorrow? God brings into a scripture into mind, Romans 1 verse 16, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, to all who believe. And I'm going like, it's not sinking in. It's like, it's the power of God. He doesn't say your, your ultimate deep theology is the power of God unto salvation. He doesn't say your works or show in the world how holy you are is the power. He says the gospel. What is the gospel? A simple truth. Let's not overcomplicate it. You are wretched. You need a savior. Jesus died on a cross to take the wrath of the Father and set you free from the penalty and the power of sin in your life. That you can be restored in relationship with Him and go into heaven to spend time with Him for eternity more. That's all I need to tell someone. And the Word says, it's the power of God. I don't need, like Paul says, I don't need to use wise and persuasive words. All I need to know is Jesus and Him crucified. Why are we so scared to share it? Perhaps I don't, I'm standing there in prayer and I'm going, do I even believe that as I share this person could go from death to life? I didn't. And so I'm wrestling with my own heart, basic truth. And God said to me, become like a child. So let's start in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The same account is in Luke 9, and the disciples are arguing, and Jesus actually doesn't even overhear them. It says, knowing what was in their hearts, or he heard them, but he figured out what was in their hearts, why they were arguing. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such as a child in my name receives me. Leave it on that one. So I want to get out the way, the second, the, the uh, verse four. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That, that verse really speaks about humility. So the disciples were, were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus is saying, become like a child, humble yourself. And in the context in the Jewish religion and in Israel at that point, children had very little value. Okay. They weren't counted as much. They were those to be seen and not heard. They had no authority. Very much like um, women, but on a lesser degree. Okay, In that time. And so, in context, Jesus is saying, humble yourself. But I didn't feel like that was what God was speaking to me. I felt like there was something else that he wanted to tell me about being a child. When I think of, of children, most of us will think what that scripture says is, because the previous one is, is even more scary, because before you become the greatest in the kingdom, you've actually got to get into the kingdom. 
So let's go back to verse 3. Sorry. It says, um, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Okay. It means eternal life is kind of linked, or it is linked, to you becoming like a child. Now, what it's not talking about is purity. Okay. We all think uh, children are born pure. We need to become pure like a child. That's not what it's saying. Like, my children, I have never had to teach my children to lie or to deceive me or to say it's not fair or to argue with one another. I never taught them any of that stuff, yet it's come out. Because in our flesh, which means in our fallen human nature, in the way that we would go if God did not intervene, we would turn out to be wretched. So that scripture is not talking about purity, It's talking about two other words that I want to submit to you this morning. When Jesus said to the child, come, what did he do? He came. Because the child recognized that he needed to be obedient. Okay. So there was an obedience on the child, and there was a faith or a humility to come. Who ultimately becomes the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Or who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. Okay. We see him being obedient to the Father and to the Father's voice. And we also see him being of ultimate humility. Go read 2 Philippians. Or Philippians 2. 2 Philippians. So what I felt the Lord saying to me in reminding me of Romans 1, was I need to become like a child when I read the Word of God. So what God started to highlight to me was the Word and the truth of God. So I want to have a a look at that. And he reminded me of one other scripture which I want to put up. It's in 2 Timothy 1. I'm going to start a little bit earlier, and then I'm going to pick up in verse 10 with you guys. It says, so Paul is writing to Timothy from jail, and he says this, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a teacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. I'm suffering for the gospel. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That line is what God reminded me of. But I know whom I have believed. There was a, an assurity that was in Paul of who gave him the message to preach and the truth of it. But the truth was based on who gave him the message. And because of that assurance, Paul was able to go and to suffer for the gospel. Because he knew whom he had believed. 
I'm reminded in Mark 1 verse 11 where Jesus is being baptized and he comes out of the water and the dove descends and God speaks over him and he says, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased before he'd even done anything in ministry. And ultimately Jesus as a son with a rooted identity goes to the cross against his own will. He prayed, Father, take this cup from me, not my will, but yours be done. Wow. So because of his identity and being rooted in truth, he was able to go through those things. So we are called as Christians to become like children in belief, in our faith, knowing whom we have believed, and in obedience to it. The problem is that we live in a world nowadays which is, as I was talking about raising the kids, is very scary. Truth has become relative. In conversations with people in the world or wherever you go, you will hear things that are not truth, but it's their truth. I am just living out my truth. The problem is that truth is not relative because if my truth becomes that I am a cow, an angry cow, mixed with an angry whatever, and I always want to be in a bad mood, you can't challenge me on it because that's my truth. But we don't live in an individualistic truth. We live under one truth, an absolute truth. When Pilate was standing before Jesus, or Jesus was standing before Pilate, and Pilate was, was um, I just want to read it quickly, when he was asking Jesus about truth, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate's response was, what is truth? In John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And so Pilate is looking for truth, and truth is staring him right back in the face. I love this um, thing that David Pawson says. I have it actually later in my thing of, the Word of God is living and active, dividing even soul and spirit. And David has this thing saying, he says, I thought I was studying the Word, but as I was reading it, the Word was studying me. Because truth will come and will cut you to set you free but it'll cut you to change you. The problem is that, that somehow we get disillusioned to the word being the truth, which is why I stand in a prayer meeting and go, do I really believe this? Because if I believe it, my, be my belief systems would fashion the entire way that I lived. So what has come in between me believing the word as truth? So I thought about it, and I came up with two main things. The first is, our experience leads us to disbelief. So that's something that's external that happens, but we believe a lie, ultimately. The second is that our flesh, or self, leads us to disobey and disregard truth. 
But before we get to that, we need to define what the Bible really is. What, what do we claim it is? Because I'm making truth claims, and I'm saying we need to believe the truth. But the question then is, is where do we find the truth? Well, the truth of God's Word. The word in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. But there is the written Word of God. And Jesus came to fulfill the written word of God. And then Jesus says, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where is the word of God? Jesus was referring to Old Testament, but he was also referring to the New Testament that was to come. Last week, I shared a little bit about the devotion to the apostles' teaching. The word, the word is what we've got to stand on. That is the truth. If the word says it, I need to read it. And I need to believe it and let that fashion my life and my belief system. So I experience, okay, so let's, so, so how would we describe the word, the, the, the Bible? So I want to look at three words that we would generally refer to. We would say the Bible is the inspiration under the Holy Spirit or the inspired word of God. It is infallible and inerrant. Jeez, so I knew those things, but I didn't know what they meant, so I looked them up. So the inspiration, we believe from Scripture that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching. The same word that they use for breathed is the same word that they use for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was, we believe as Christians, or we should believe, that the Holy Spirit was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so man didn't write his own thoughts down, and then they became Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit led us, men, to write down Scripture. Okay, so that's inspiration. Infallible. Infallible means incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. So we've got to believe that the Bible is completely incapable of being wrong or making a mistake. It is never failing and always effective. Wow. Okay, that's what infallible means. Do we believe that? As I'm saying these things, are you thinking of any scriptures that you wrestle with and you're like, maybe there was error there or it is ineffective? Maybe you sing a song and you're like, he breaks every chain, but he hasn't broken every chain in my life. And so something in you brings Scripture into question, brings a song into question. You don't sing it as truth. And then, inerrant. E.J. Young, in his classic work on the inspiration of the Bible, gives us a good definition of inerrancy. By this word, we mean that the Scriptures possess the quality of freedom from error. They are exempt from the liability to mistake, incapable of error, in all their teachings, they are in perfect accord with the truth. Jesus said, I came to bring truth. So the Bible and what Jesus say are completely together. Which is interesting because very often you, have a, you talk to someone, they're like, I follow Jesus and what he says. Not the rest of the word. But Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. And we believe that all scripture is God-breathed. So I can't just follow the scriptures about Jesus in the gospel. I've got to know what the whole word says. It does not demand rigidity of style and verbatim quotations from the Old Testament. The inerrancy of the Bible means simply that the Bible tells the truth. Truth can and does include approximations, free quotations, language of appearances, 
and different accounts of the same event as long as those do not contradict. Okay? We look at the Gospels, for instance. The Gospels aren't all the same, but they were never meant to be the same. They were meant to look at the same situation from different angles, and they were all written actually for different purposes, with a different uh, audience in mind. That's why we have four of them and not just one gospel account. It's why it's not actually helpful to take all the gospels and try and mash them together into one logical, because the context behind the, the book is very often based on the author and who they were writing to. But none of the gospels contradict one another. So let me read just a couple of scriptures about the Word of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, I've already mentioned. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, His way is perfect. The Lord's Word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in Him. Matthew 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And lastly, Hebrews 4, verse 12, which I've also mentioned, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to divide in soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and heart attitudes of the heart. So I want to look now quickly at the two reasons things that could shortchange you in believing the truth. Because I think to a degree, none of us believe the truth entirely. We want to. Like the father who comes to Jesus and says, I believe, help me in my disbelief. You will never have the entirety of truth that you always believe. Somewhere along the line, your faith might waver slightly, even if it's half a percent. And so, we need to look at these things and deal with them because the truth has got to be what we place the foundation of our lives on. Okay, so I want to give you two stories, one very embarrassing from my own life. So the first example is our experience leads us to disbelief or lines up with a misguided faith. So when I was a, a, a young boy, I had a friend who lived across the road and he had an Alsatian. I don't know if you know, Alsatians are bred as, um, they're very useful as um, police dogs. You can train them, they're highly intelligent, but they will attack on command. And the one day I was at his house and the Alsatian was under the bed looking and sniffing for something. I put my hand on its butt to pat it. I was only about five years old and this thing jumped up and attacked me and I turned around and its claws went on my back and it's, I've still got the scar on my hand. Its um, canine went straight through over here. And my mom rushed me to the doctor down the road and they disinfected it. And uh, the funny thing is that whenever I see an Alsatian now, something in me goes, danger. That's a dangerous animal. D does an Alsatian scream that for any of you? No. Why? Because you haven't been attacked by one. So my, my experience fashioned my belief about something and I stereotyped it immediately. All Alsatians are dangerous. The other one is more embarrassing. I don't know what happened when I was very young. Uh, I know I ate bananas because I can specifically remember eating two in one day. And uh, I don't know what happened. I think I might have eaten the little black tip on it. And uh, it might have made me sick or something like that. Anyways, I developed a massive mental case against bananas. I'm not 
as a tr truth, I'm not allergic to bananas. But my hate for bananas became so bad that if you waved a banana peel in front of me, I would smack you. I would be violent. It, if you ate a banana and the, it was still on your hands, even with my kids, this is still real today, so this is a confession, I'll be like, before you hug me, wash your hands. <laughs> I'm not like God at all, by the way. I'm an evil father. But um, it, the, something in my childhood scarred me to the point where today I honestly believe that the snake and the banana look very similar, and that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we shouldn't be eating them. What am I trying to say is that something, something of an experience fashioned my belief system to the point where my whole personality would change at the sight of a banana skin. My brother would torture me by chasing me around the house with banana skin, and unfortunately he was faster than me, which sucks. So I'm going to give you an example of how that can happen in your Christian faith. And, and, and sometimes it, it, it's a misguided faith. I'll share a story like or an example with my kids. Imagine, imagine I did this with my kids. Um, my kids are standing on the wall, and they jump, and I love to catch them. And slowly they build trust in me as the dad. And then the one time she's standing on the wall, and I know she wants to jump, and I say, hold on a second, Elizabeth. I just want to pick this up. And as I turn around to pick it up, she jumps. She claps. Now all of a sudden... She won't jump as quickly the next time. But I said, hold on, I'm just busy with something. So there was something in her that maybe wasn't obedient, and it fashioned her belief in me or her trust in me from then on. So let's look at a scripture, James 5, verse 14 to 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. It says this, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So we read that. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Wow. So if you are desperately sick and you call Morris, myself, or Neil to come and pray for you, you'll be healed because the prayer offered in faith will make you well. So have you ever prayed for someone and they haven't been healed? Yes, me too all the time. I've prayed for people, and then I'm like, geez, but do I not have faith? Okay, let's look at another scripture, 1 Timothy 5 verse 23, being written by Paul, probably the greatest elder with the most faith that was, has ever lived. He says to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Hold on, Paul, aren't you an elder? Shouldn't you just have laid hands in faith on Timothy and prayed for him? Wouldn't that have made him well? Why are you telling him to drink a little bit of wine, i.e. medicine? So we can stand on a portion of Scripture that potentially is out of context for the moment because your dad is saying, wait, don't jump. Or he's saying, your healing is coming, but it's not found there. Maybe there's sin in your life or there's something else going on that he wants to deal with. And you're going, well, God doesn't heal. I'm disappointed. Or maybe I don't have faith. Maybe the elders don't have faith. Come on. Paul, a man of faith. So there's an experience that shapes our belief. 
So does that nullify God's ability to heal? No. Does that nullify your faith? Shouldn't. Are you out of the faith if someone doesn't get healed? No. But what would happen in a scenario like that is that the devil would bring that thing up against you. So this is external. So this is where the devil would want to nullify the truth of God. The devil will... And so the next time, like let's say you're roaring like a lion, you're fighting my battles. And somewhere along the line in the faith, you lost the battle. Okay. So you can't sing that anymore. You don't feel like God's roaring over you. Because the devil will go and he'll be the accuser of the brethren. He'll come to you and he'll go... The last time you didn't get healed, you didn't win that battle. You can't sing that song. God doesn't win battles for you. He doesn't break every chain. He'll accuse you like that. So the first thing that I want us to hear is that sometimes circumstances, whether it's we had a misappropriation of Scripture or we actually weren't being obedient to God's voice and He was saying, wait, don't jump, I'm busy with something. Or your healing's coming, but it's coming through forgiving that person. Then we, we just nullify the power of God in our life and Scripture. The second is our flesh. Our flesh leads us to disobey and disregard truth. I've already said, flesh basically is our, is our fallen nature. It's the fact that as, as babies were born uh, to fulfill corruption, basically. As the child of Adam, the first seed, and in a fallen nature, unless God intervenes and saves us from it, we will go towards corruption. So what, so what I want to say about this, the flesh leads us to disobey and disregard truth. Go and read any of, from Matthew 5 onwards, the Sermon on the Mount. So, so but like, let's say, for instance, um, the Bible says, Jesus says, um, love your enemies, hate those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So you read that and you go, that is a really hard scripture. That is super hard. Um, but Jesus, the, what this person did to me was really bad. I can't forgive them. So what are you doing? Because of your sinful nature, you nullify Scripture. Perhaps it says, do not commit adultery. Simple. Or, or the, uh, the man who looks at a woman with lust commits adultery in his heart. And you're in the gym, and all these women are wearing nice little tight, shiny pants. And you're like, I'll just look a little bit longer. I'll just play a bit longer. The consequence is not really bad. I mean, Scripture's a little bit outdated. It's very difficult. I mean, God, did you even realize that virgin active would exist when you had this Scripture written? He did. And so we take a portion of Scripture, and because of our own sinful nature and our own disobedience, we nullify it. We kill it off. If that's the case, we need to repent. Because it is still truth. If you look at a woman with lust, you commit adultery. If you cannot forgive someone in your heart, you will not be forgiven. Scripture. I don't have to explain it. It's what the Bible says. In fact, it's what Jesus said. So here's a danger of this thing, of nullifying truth in the Bible and what it does to us. So let's say now I've looked at the girl and I've committed adultery and I've gone, but Jesus, your word, maybe it doesn't apply to me in that scenario. So what portion of Scripture then does apply to you? 
So you start to fashion your own little religion of what suits you. However, a tough portion comes up in your life. And you're like, I want to stand on Romans 8.28. For all things work together for the good of those who love Him. Something in you can't believe that Scripture. Why? Because Scripture is no longer the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. There's a, you, you have brought the, the, the um, you and me have brought the just holiness of Scripture into question. Like, you know, how can I even, how do I even know then that I'm saved? Because I, I, I stand on truth to know that I'm saved and a child of God. How great, 1 John 3 verse 1, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. You don't feel like a child of God because Scripture has lost its power in your life. Scripture has lost power in my life. I either need to accept the whole of Scripture as God's Word because it's inerrant and infallible or if I find... If I can't hold one part, I must throw the whole lot out because that yeast is going to work its way through the whole batch. My belief system on the truth is going to be nullified. You know, one of the the devil's main schemes from the beginning was to bring the Word of God into, into disrepute, to question it. Did God really say? That's all he has to do. He has to do it in you from his own mouth or he'll lead you in your flesh and tempt you so far that you won't want to obey Scripture because Scripture is very hard. It is very difficult to be a Christian. It is far more gutsy and hardcore to be a Christian than not to be a Christian because if I'm not a Christian, I'm my own master, I make my own rules. But as soon as I bow my knee to his lordship, I have to obey his whole word. But there's security in it because I don't grab my kids' hands and pull them back because I don't want them to run in the road because the road is a more fun place to play. I do it because I love them and I don't want to see them get hurt. The last thing that I was asked chatting to Lex about this and she said one of the things is also that we just get distracted from the truth. The truth is hard to hear. It really is and it's challenging. I was um, chatting to someone recently and um, I was asking about hearing God's voice if you're in a relationship with Him. And uh, He said, yeah, prophetic. I had a prophetic word for someone. I was like, that's a gift. When was the last time God spoke to you? Because ultimately when He speaks to you, what He's going to do is He's going to make you look more like Jesus. That's the whole role of the Holy Spirit. And the first way that He's going to do that is He's going to make you repent. So He's going to convict you of stuff. So very often when God speaks to you, He doesn't only encourage you and love you. He will do those things, but He'll convict you. And then you've got to come to terms and grip with this truth of, I'm actually not so great. I actually need a Savior. I actually did mess up. We get distracted from the truth. We become so busy that we don't have time to read the Bible and believe it anymore. It's easier to just discard it on the side, get onto YouTube, get lost in video games, look at cars, look at Bitcoin, whatever. Even get busy in ministry because somehow that pleases God. No faith pleases God. Being obedient to His Word pleases God. That's what a child does and that's what a child of God does. So we...
at the end of the at the at the end on judgment day god's not going to say well you covered your eyes and you didn't read my words so you know you're okay as his children were called to hear his voice where's his voice his word We've got to study it. We've got to know what it says in order to please our Father. Psalm 119, verse 105, it says this, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. The word and the revealed word in Jesus are always in agreement. Always. Don't tell me that Jesus said that you can leave your husband or your wife and go with that, that little good-looking person because they love you more and they give you butterflies. No, it doesn't line up with God's word. So don't say Jesus said. God is calling us to become as children, to read the word and to know it. I think that, not that God is fearful, but I think the thing that hurts his heart the most is when external circumstances or us ourselves say, I don't want you to be my father. I don't want you to speak to me. I think that that utterly pains him. I think it brings him into so much hurt and that he grieves over it. So what, the way that I want us to, to end is to do this. And, and, and since God said that to me of this thing of becoming a child, when I read my, my Bible open now, what I don't try and do is, is develop and unlock massive, big, complicated doctrines. I read it, and I go, Lord, what are you saying to me? I must believe that this is truth. I want to live this way, and if there's something in me that's not of this way, I want to repent, and I want to turn back to the truth of your word. And the Holy Spirit will often remind us then of the scripture that we've read and allow us to change, and then the word becomes living and active. So what I want us to do is to read the scripture from John 8 together, like children. Yes, we're called to read in context. Yes, we're called to read the whole of the word. But let's read this together as children and see what it says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's an amazing thing. If you abide in my word, think of John 15, it lines up with, you will be my disciples. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There's a massive promise there of freedom if we can just believe the word and abide in Jesus' word. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Another truth claim. If you commit it and you habitually commit it, that thing becomes your master. Read it, it's right there in the text. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains in the house forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What is that? What was that picture of Lundy? Sin will set, make you as a slave. Outside of the house, looking through the window, watching the people listening. But you're on the outskirts because you're in sin. But if you're in the sun, you'll be in the house. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Once again, this thing of word. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard 
from your father? They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Some scriptures say illegitimacy. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I am not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, and he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Wow. Which of you... Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. If we read that like a child, Jesus is basically saying, you don't want the truth, therefore your father's the devil. If you love me, you love the father as well. If you love my word, you'll be in the house and you will be set free. But if you don't love my word, if you don't obey my word, if you don't, if you don't adopt it as truth and allow it to change you, you can have no part in me. That's what it's saying. If you read it like a child. But that's a harsh statement. And the world would tell you. And progressive Christianity would tell you. God is love. How can a God of love punish people? But he's saying, remain in the Son. Remain in my word. Be obedient to it. Adopt the truth. The only truth you're going to find is in the Bible. That is the ultimate truth. That's why when Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, what is truth? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ask Mark to pray for us, um, and just as he prays, in our hearts respond. But um, this is one thing I wanted to. Uh, that I saw in the scripture of, of um, that he read in Matthew, and he says, says, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you've got to turn and become like a child. And you need to humble yourself like a child. And the thing I think that's key for us is that we're all Christians. So we'll say, wait, look, we've seen the big truths. But the catch is those small areas of your life where you are not living according to God's truth. So one of the things I love about my quiet time is when I read the Bible, I, I kind of read through it, there's not a day when, not, when there isn't something that the Holy Spirit is saying through the Word that touches on something in my life that is not living perfectly according to God's truth. So, and, and the importance about this turning thing, it's a repentance. 
If you want to become like a child, you've got to change those areas of your life. We are not living like a child. You've got to turn away from it. And the humility is crucial because often we persist in things that we want to just because we're too proud, proudful to admit that we're in sin. Nine out of ten times our sin is linked to some form of pride. We think we're better or we don't do something because we want to. Ultimately, we're saying, I want to live like I want to live, God. And that's just some form of pride. So if you see a truth in Scripture that's hard for you to reconcile yourself with because it's not there, there's a repentance. Like, Lord, I see that my life does not line up with this. I acknowledge it before you. That you need to have that humility to say, Lord, I see that this is the truth. It's not in me. And I want to repent. So as he prays for us, the, I think the beautiful thing about this message is like in every area of our lives, there's aspects that are not lining up with who Jesus is and what his word says, how we must live. And so often we, we do the fleshly thing, the easy thing, but God is good. It's hard sometimes to make the adjustments, but there's goodness on the other side. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to open the sliding doors and, because it's a, it's a challenge or it's hard for you personally. But if it's the Holy Spirit asking you to do it, and if it's in God's Word, do it. Humble yourself because He wants to change us for our good. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, so um, the other... Awesome part is that in, in 1 John, it talks about us falling, falling short. It says that when you sin, there's an advocate in heaven. Now, God doesn't, I don't require perfection from my children. I want obedience. And, and God doesn't require perfection from us. He asks for obedience. His son is perfect. We're not called to earn our own righteousness. We're called to be found in him and to listen to the Father's voice and to walk in truth and to believe truth to humble ourselves. It's hard to say I need Jesus. It really is. Because you're recognizing that you're broken. But we're all broken. And you're not perfect today. And that's okay. Because God's made allowance for that. But you've got to recognize that you're not perfect today. So as I pray for us, I want to just pray on those two things. So the first one was, perhaps while I was speaking, God just brought to memory something of, You've lost the trust in the Word of God or the truth of God through a bad experience. I'll give you another one of mine. <laughs> when I went to Hong Kong, there was this thing that they did called the fire tunnel. Many of you will know the fire tunnel. And um, basically, you, people put you know, their hands over like us, and as you're walking through, they pray for you. You're meant to get slain in the Spirit as you go through and filled with the Holy Spirit. So we're there, and people are going through, and I'm waiting in the line, and as people are going through, they're not even making it through the tunnel. They're kind of like falling down in the spirit halfway through. And I'm like, this is my time, because I haven't felt the Holy Spirit that powerfully before. And I'm walking through, and I'm just waiting, and I'm just waiting, and all of a sudden, I almost hit the wall, because I've like come out the other side sober as a kite. And I'm like, seriously, what is wrong with me? Like, God, are you pleased? You, you're displeased with me. What is it? And I struggled with that thing for ages. And every time a fire tunnel or a prayer for the Holy Spirit came up, something in my heart went, and it just rejected it. And I was like, but the Bible says that we're to ask the Father, and He will give us the Holy Spirit. 
And yet I'd, I'd, I'd been so scared of this person called the Holy Spirit because of a bad experience in my life. I had to repent. I'm sorry, Lord, that I trusted in that thing. I trust that you're with me. I, and now I feel him all the time. So we're called to repent. So maybe you had a bad experience. Maybe you prayed for someone for healing, and all of a sudden in you, you don't really want to pray for healing anymore. God didn't tell you to heal people. He said, I you to pray for people. Or you didn't even wait for your father to tell you, go and pray for that person. Or you were praying for them, and you were going, and he's going, it's not healing. And you're like, I'm going to pray for healing because I feel like that's obedience. You're going to get hurt because you didn't hear your father say, hold on, I'm just picking something up over here. So what part of you, maybe it's leadership. You can't trust leadership because of a bad experience. But the Bible says, submit yourself to authority. Make your leaders life a joy. So what in you, if you recognize that there's something in you that through a bad experience, you've nullified certain scripture or had to justify it out the way, then you need to repent because scripture is truth. It's not God's fault that you went through those things. But the second is, if there's some kind of sin in your life that makes it so difficult to listen to and adopt Scripture, and you're holding on to that sin so tightly that you can't, you have to disregard certain Scripture in order to have that thing, because God wants to cut a cancer out of your life, then you need to repent, because you're not being obedient to His Word. So if it's an experience or something else. Now, what I don't want is for everyone to stand up, just for the sake of standing up. Uh, and we'll pray for the people who stand up. So if it's you, and it's either of those things, and what I'm going to ask you to do is, if it's the first thing, and it's, a, and it's an experience, I'm going to ask you to put out one hand, just so we know what we're praying for. And if it's something where you've held on to something else, I'm going to ask you to put out So is there anyone who would like prayer this morning? So the first one is that Something happened in your life where the devil would come and he would say, Scripture's nullified, that person wasn't healed, for example. Okay, you don't need to believe that. And the second one is, there's a sin in your life that you're holding on to that you can't accept a certain Scripture, like, do not worry about tomorrow. But you've spent all your time worrying because you want to control your life. Then you need to let go of that thing. That's two hands. So is there anyone like that? Anyone who wants to respond? Okay, brilliant. Stand up. Stand up. And just put out one hand or two hands, just so I know what we're praying for. You know. We don't need to, you don't need to tell me. The Lord knows. You just bring your heart before Him. Okay. I'm going to give it another couple of seconds, then we'll pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I, I, I personally am standing up with um, one and two hands up. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah, Father, it's so hard to confess that we miss it, that we fall short. But your word says that we fall short. Your word says that everyone falls short. And yet you make a way to set us free. You make a way to forgive us. All that we're called to do is to repent, turn away from that thing and turn towards you. Father, where we've 
believed the lies of the enemies or we've misappropriated Scripture or we've allowed our faith to, to be killed and, or to be lessened or to be um, made lame because of a disappointment in our lives. We want to repent and say that we're sorry, Lord. We want to believe your truth. We want to believe your word. We want to read the word with the eyes of a child. Just believe in their father has good things for them. And Lord, where we've held on to flesh, where we've held on to sin, as you've asked us, that you've convicted us and said, get rid of that thing. It's hurting you. And we've held on to it. Despite scripture, we bring those areas before you, Lord. We ask you to, by your spirit, by your word, to cut them out. That as we repent, Lord, as we're sorry, we know that we see that we've hurt you. We've fallen short on purpose sometimes. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, and to come and heal our wounds, Lord, and to give us faith in Scripture again, Lord, to stand and know that we can lean on the truth, that that thing hasn't disqualified us from your positive and amazing promises of life over us, of our identity in Christ. And so we bring ourselves to you this morning, Lord. We ask you to do a deep work, Lord, that as we read Scripture this week, that we would believe it like a child. We would know that we've got a good Father, that as we ask of your, for your Holy Spirit, that we would wait and that we would receive. That as you speak into our life, Lord, I just pray for a, a boldness of radical obedience to what your scripture says to us. That as we have our quiet times, that as we work through your word, as we work through your truth, that we would be able to adopt it as our truth. And that as we do that, Lord, that you would fashion our faith, which ultimately will change the way we live our lives in a radical way. We don't want to be like the world, Lord. We don't want to discard truth. We want to stand on truth. So we thank you for this word, Lord. We pray that it would um, bear much fruit and that as we submit our lives to you, they would bear much fruit for your glory and your name. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.